welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how the show grows anyway, so that's always appreciated as well. In this week's show, we'll cover the breaking news that Congress has come to terms on another COVID-19 relief package that's set to pass during the lamed-up term over the next couple of weeks, and I'll go through the key facets of this deal, why it's happening now, and some of the political gamesmanship that's being played in and around it. In the second segment, we'll walk through the latest numbers on the coronavirus, talk through the newly reported numbers that we now have on the vaccination effort, and more. And then finally, in the light item segment, I'm going to send you guys off on a special Christmas-themed note. So that is the agenda for this show, so we can jump right in. As I said at the top, Congress is passing a new relief legislation. This news had been percolating throughout the week, but it broke late Sunday night, and it is definitely the big news because it means it, it means two things here. You're going to get a relief package related to COVID-19, and you're also going to get funding for the government because the current uh, continuing resolution was set to run out. So Democrats and Republicans have Congress have come to the terms on this relief package, and the overall amount for the entire relief package portion of this is estimated to be around $900 billion. The vote is expected to go late in the Sunday uh, evening as I'm recording now and go into early Monday morning as they try to figure out exactly how they're going to get this vote through. Everyone was getting their briefing late Sunday and then they were going to extend voting hours into the early morning hours to ensure that it got passed through without running out of funding for the government, since that is the big deadline that they're running up against here. So we'll start here with the main relief portion of that, because that is the big news, and then work forward from there. So there are two aspects overall to the overall aid package, and the Wall Street Journal did a really nice job of teasing out all the various aspects of this thing. So I was just going to go through their, so part of their run through of this to give you an overview. So they say that the House is expected to vote on a 24-hour extension of government funding Sunday evening, setting up votes for the relief package and a broader spending bill for Monday. The aid package is tied to a roughly $1.4 trillion annual spending package. And Congress has passed a series of temporary spending bills in recent days to keep the government funded while it finishes the negotiations. They continue and say, The emerging agreement is expected to provide $600 direct checks to many Americans, $300 a week in enhanced federal unemployment benefits, as well as aid for schools, vaccine distribution, and small businesses. Missing it from this, of course, are the two big things that uh, both Democrats and Republicans wanted in different ways. So on the Republican side, they were wanting a, so forms of relief for businesses and protection in form of liability protection from being sued. Um, you don't want people going into your business and being sued if they catch COVID-19 there. So what they were looking for is to provide liability protection for employers, both on the consumer basis and for employees. Democrats have opposed this because they don't want to protect, they don't want laws to protect quote unquote big business. But it's also an issue for businesses because if you can't guarantee that you can open safely and that you're open to all these forms of liability, it does cause issues. So there is, there has been a, a, a long drawn out back and forth on that front. 
And then on the other side, Democrats have wanted a lot of basically bailout money to go towards some of these, they call it state and local governments, but in reality, it's going to a lot of these major cities that have taken the brunt of, especially on the hospital front where they've had a lot of patients and so forth and had a lot of businesses shut down. So they are looking to prop up places like your New York cities and so on and so forth. So those have been some of the big distinctions between the two sides. They both decided to drop this, those two big issues and just go with a basic relief package here. And like the $1,200 check that everyone got at this point several months ago back in the spring, uh, this one's going to be half that at $600, but it should go out automatically based on your tax returns and everything like that. So it should take place exactly like everything took place before, at least on the direct payments front. Um, this is all coming through, this relief bill is coming through a new continuing resolution, a CR, to fund the government. Uh, and I would expect... Let's say you have, if this thing truly does go through at some point Monday, maybe Tuesday at the latest, you could, the last time a relief bill was, was passed, two weeks later you had the first check starting to go out. So if you projected forward from Monday, you're talking the first week of January is probably when you're seeing the very first checks. The second week, you this should be up and going full throttle. So that's about the timeline that you're talking about here when you're looking at some of this relief going out. That is the individual checks. And, of course, there is, there are uh, caps on this. Uh, it goes down starting, I believe, at $75,000 and $150,000 combined if you're married. So there are some, of course, caveats to this. They're trying to basically means test it here to ensure that uh, not everyone gets this, trying to make sure that rich don't get it. Of course, in this type of environment, that that is not always the best policy to get because you don't know, know exactly who is employed at any given of time. Because of the way this has impacted people, you could have a tax return that says that you are making a lot of money, but because of the virus, you're not making any money at all, just due to special circumstances here and this virus. So that is something that I don't believe... I know why they're doing it, but if you view income only in the forms of who's getting a paycheck, you're missing a wide swath of people here who get their income through other means, and the virus could be drying that up. So I, I tend not to agree with this line of thought. I, I'm, I'm more on the side of they should have, one, they should be doing a lot more than $600. There was a viral video going around on social media of this guy leaning out the side of his car, looking up the hills, and it was looking at a big brush fire. A forest was on fire, and he pulled out a water gun and was just shooting it out his window like he was trying to put it out. Of course, that doesn't do anything, but the caption, of course, was $600 in the middle of a pandemic. And that's about what this is to most people, because if you've lost your job, if you're sitting here teetering on the edge of dealing with eviction, if you're dealing with all these other issues that have come along with entire swaths of the economy that have been shut down, sometimes permanently due to government action here, then $600 is almost a slap in the face. One of my pet peeves about these things is that both elected officials and journalists refer to these checks as stimulus checks. And that's a throwback to what you would see in a normal recessionary cycle when the government will sometimes send out checks in order to boost demand. You're trying to get people to take that money and spend it to stir up all kinds of of people spending money and getting the economy working again. You're trying to increase the liquidity in the system. And when you're in a typical boom-bust cycle in the business cycle, where you're talking about whether or not you're dealing with a recession or you're dealing with people with their businesses going under or just trying to get people to stop saving money in the middle of a, a crunch, anything like that, there are basic factors, economic factors that you're talking about, supply and demand and where, how you can get those moving again in order to get your economy moving again in the middle of a recession or a depression, whatever it may be. These checks are not that. You're not trying to boost supply or demand here. You're not trying to get people to spend money, and you're not trying to get 
these businesses and suppliers to put more product out into the economy in order to lower prices and get people to spend money. You're not trying to do either one of those things. In fact, you're trying to restrain both your supply and your demand. You don't want people going out. Explicitly, you don't want people going out to restaurants and other things. So you're basically cutting them a check and saying, hey, we need you to stay home. So here's some money for you to stay home. So you're, you're trying to squeeze your supply and demand. And on the flip side, you're, t- you're with, with the, uh, the paycheck protection plan for these companies, when you're letting them take out basically no interest loans or very low interest loans, you're saying, we know that you are hurt here financially. Here is some money to keep you afloat while we know and don't want you to take on any customers right now because it is dangerous during a pandemic. None of this money is stimulus money. It's not being used to stimulate anything. In fact, if anything, this is more like a takings thing in a constitutional speaking basis. So in in constitutional world, if the government is going to take something of yours, like say they want a part of your property to put in a road, you know, that's typically called eminent domain. But if they want to do that under the Constitution, they have to pay you fair market value for that land. They can't just take it from you. This is sort of the same concept. The government is saying, we have a dangerous pandemic. We don't want people engaging in commerce. We don't want this happening on both sides. Now, we know some is going to happen because you have to buy groceries. You have to do all those kinds of basic things. But we're trying to get rid of as much of it as possible. So we're going to cut checks for people not to do these types of things. So we're going to cut them that check. Their time is worth this. So we're going to do that. So the initial check for $1,200, that was something. Uh, if you truly lost your job during that time, you were able to file for unemployment, and all those funds started drying up. And that's part of what's being reinstated here. People who need that unemployment money are going to be able to get it because they're basically saying we're going to continue along these these boosts to that. The direct paycheck, on the other hand, it, I mean, this is this is not enough to do really anything here. It may keep you afloat for one more month, kind of like you would see. The $1,200 in the original thing keep people afloat, but it's just not enough long-term. So, again, this is not stimulus. This is paying people to not do anything. And then when you're in the middle of a pandemic where things are bad, as we've been sort of at the peak here of this, that is what you're trying to change in human behavior. This is not enough to change human behavior. It's barely enough to be... in. It's barely crossing the line here, being able to call itself aid. The direct checks are basically nothing. The unemployment is going to help, and obviously they have to pump money into the vaccination effort. Some of these things they just have to do because this is what we are doing. So some of this you just expect to see. But overall, it's hard to call this an aid package overall. But again, I would expect the first or second week of January to start seeing people use use that and have that coming out. If you are currently getting unemployment benefits, those should kick in, if not in the same amount of time, probably they could happen faster because this is just a pool of money that these states can tap into and use. So that may happen a little bit faster. And in either event, I would expect emails and letters to go out to people who are receiving unemployment benefits in order to tell them exactly what steps they need to take, what's going to happen so forth and so on. So those are the basic contours of this. It's it's the same thing that we did in the spring, just much smaller. In the spring and summer, you were talking multiple trillion dollars where you're trying to keep businesses afloat. You're trying to send out paychecks to people in order to keep them afloat. And this is basically less than half of what we did in the past. So the reason also that you're hearing that this is part of a $1.4 trillion continuing resolution thing here is because they're also having to pass this alongside of a continuing resolution saying we're going to fund the government because the reason you have these these quick spending thing here is because they're up against the the time here because the government's running out of money again we don't pass budgets anymore we pass what are called continuing resolutions where they all agree we are going to continue funding the government we're not going to go into a government shutdown We have not passed an actual budget where we have to avoid these kinds of things in well over a decade. Originally, the continuing resolutions were used 
they've been used sparingly throughout American history, but in reality, they really came up during the Great Recession, during the Bush administration, when you had this big, tight crunch that was unforeseen by anybody. So you had some continuing resolutions that were filed to keep things running. And then after that, during the Obama years, we just passed one of those every year. It didn't pass a budget, and that has continued ever since. We don't have budgetary talks anymore. We're not in a normal budgetary order, as you would think would be required by the Constitution. Instead, we're just passing these continuing resolutions. So every year, we uh, on some date, it's always predetermined by what the previous date set was, so... We come up against this thing where the government starts running out of money and they say, you've got to pass another continuing resolution or it's going to be another government shutdown. Sometimes, in the case of Trump was the last one, where he just goes into the shutdown because he wants funding for this, that, or the other. But for the most part, the two parties have just said, we'll just deal with this the last two weeks before something is due and we'll shove through some massive spending bill with no controls whatsoever. And we'll call that... We'll just call it a day after that. So they usually, in this case, they kicked it into the lame duck. This one, they may kick it, depending on how, how ambitious they get here, they might just kick it into the beginning few months of the Biden administration and just let the new Congress deal with it. We shall see. But that is what's happening here. And the reason the story, the Wall Street Journal, the reason their story says that this is going into Sunday and Monday and all of that type of stuff is because... They had to pass a, basically a continuing resolution for two or three days in order to allow them to get this through. So they're trying to avoid a shutdown. They're just so slow at some of this that they, they have to pass another one in order to get them across the finish line. So that is what is happening here. This is raw congressional incompetence on all fronts. I, I personally, at this point, I, I don't have a very high bar for what I want here. I just want people to return to a normal budgetary order where we're passing a budget. People talk about it. They debate it, and then they pass it. In fact, I'd be willing to roll back things like, bring back things like uh, earmarks just to get a budget passed. Because all that pork barrel spending that Republicans complained about forever, that's not really an issue. The real issue are your entitlement programs, Medicare, all those types of entitlement programs. Those are your big spenders. All the pork barrel spending stuff is a drop in the bucket compared to everything else that we're spending money on as a country. That's an entire other rant, though, that I can go on. So we're trying to keep the government funded and at the same time also pass a COVID-19 relief bill. That's going to happen now. They finally came to terms. They dropped some of the stuff that they were saying were red lines for each other. And they're just going to pass a basic aid package while also kicking the can down the road on a continuing resolution. I don't expect any of that to change during a Biden administration because he's not a very ambitious looking president. So, with everything being a stopgap right now, and, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is going to have about a six, seven vote majority in the House. If everything goes perfectly for Democrats, at best, they're looking at a 50-50 Senate. I don't think that's going to happen. I tend to, in fact, I tend to favor Republicans and both those Senate races down there. So... Uh, you know, you're looking at Republicans continue to control the Senate and a very narrow path through the House. So the odds of anything major happening legislatively in the near future, especially for the next two years, are very, very low, just extremely low. And it's worth noting here, and, and some of the congressional reporters have done this, they have started asking Nancy Pelosi, one, why we're in this place, that's the first basic question. And the second one is, why are they cutting this deal? This is so much smaller than what they debated in the fall, for example. In fact, CNN congressional reporter Manny Raji, he tweeted out the following. He said, Pelosi wouldn't answer my question about why the $900 billion deal is more acceptable to her than the $1.8 trillion deal offered by Steve Mnuchin made to her this past fall. And the answer is because she doesn't have a good reason here. In fact, her, the moderates in the Democratic Party were pushing her before the election to take a deal because Trump wanted a deal. If you recall, the Trump administration wanted another relief package, and they wanted a large one. Trump was willing to spend 2 or $3 trillion. It was Senate Republicans who wanted to bring that under that. 
They were starting out somewhere around $900 billion, and Trump was trying to work them up to around $1.5 trillion, maybe two. And Nancy Pelosi was off in dreamland with her her full-on Democratic Party wish list of everything that they would ever wanted and more. And Pelosi, instead of negotiating and trying to come to a deal that would have benefited the moderates in her caucus, refused. And in fact, she not only refused, she filled the relief package and any funding that she had put together full of hardline poison pills that she knew no Republican, centrist, regular, far-right, none of them would accept. He was purposely filled with these things in order to get Republicans to back off instead of negotiating in good faith, which Steve Mnuchin was trying to do because the administration wanted a deal. Trump wanted to spend money right before the election because he thought it would help him out. That was his political interest. Nancy Pelosi saw that and said, well, his political interest is that. Mine is the opposite. If we don't cut a deal, then that means that people will blame Republicans for there not being aid and relief, and they'll vote for Democrats instead. That was her political gamble. So she didn't negotiate at all. And so now here we are back to basically to what the Republicans originally wanted back in the fall with her $900 billion, just minus the liability protection. So we're here, and Pelosi's refusing to take you know questions about this, but we're here because of her. We're in this lame duck because of her passing a subpar relief bill because she refused to play ball. And now in the lame duck, this is about all you can get together in the intervening time. And so that's just about all that there is to say about this, because she believed Democrats would benefit from a no-aid package and that voters were playing Republicans. And instead, that backfired, and Democrats lost seats across the board, and now with the government funding having to go through, she's stuck with a much lower amount that everyone agrees they can get through quickly. That is the key thing about this. Everyone knows you can get through this deal very quickly. There's not going to be any hiccups if you do this the right way. McConnell knows this. Pelosi knows this. And so they're just settling for this and going with it, knowing full well that just a few months ago they could have had a much better deal. And Pelosi, she can't say no this time politically because it's already been proven in election that if he does, she does that, voters will blame Democrats. They absolutely will blame Democrats, and she has to take the deal because there are two Senate seats up. McConnell wants the deal because it's, he thinks it'll help Republicans in the Georgia runoffs. Pelosi, if she doesn't take the deal, is going to look like the person who's purposely trying to hurt Democratic efforts to win the Senate because then the Republicans in that race can turn around and say... These two Democrats here would do nothing to move Pelosi along. They would get absolutely nothing done, and the Democrats are the one, and this would be correct, they are blocking relief package aid for you, Mr. and Mrs. Voter. You are not getting this because they are sending, saying no. So she's got to take this deal. She's got to fund the government because no one wants a government shutdown right as Biden goes into office. And Biden, for his part, is just politically he's pitching this as a down payment to future aid that's coming down the pike. But literally no one knows that that's the case or not because you're going to have a closer, you're going to have a narrower uh, majority in the House for Democrats, and you may not have a majority at all in the Senate. At best, you're looking at 50-50 with Kamala Harris breaking a tie. And if just one or two Democrats decide to break ranks, and so you're looking at someone like Manchin out of West Virginia, if he decides he doesn't want to go with some of the string things with the Democratic Party, all of a sudden you're left with a Democratic Party without a majority in the Senate. So it is a very, very tight needle to thread here across all of Congress, and Democrats just do not have the space to be able to do what they want to do here. So, uh, you know, in, in even thinking through that, of all the political gambles so far this century, Pelosi lost in pretty stunning fashion this past one, just because of how she played out the aid package negotiations. The other big one would be McConnell because he gambled on a Supreme Court seat after Scalia died and just basically said, well, it's a long shot if Trump wins, but it's better if he wins and we fill this seat. And he won that. Not only did he win that, he won the chance to restack the entire court system and because Donald Trump just let him pump out every last single judge that he wanted in that space. And so... McConnell has the biggest lottery, basically gambling lottery win because he won the absolute jackpot with his and Pelosi. 
she not only lost her bet, she's losing seats and losing control of her party in the House. Literally the only reason that she's able to maintain power right now is through sheer name recognition and brute fear over the rest of the party. And even that's beginning to fade a little bit, but it's not enough to get her out of her seat. But, you know, that's a whole other rabbit trail of where we are right now. Long story short, more aid is coming. The last time aid went out, the check started about two weeks afterwards. We've got Christmas and New Year's here, so it wouldn't shock me to see about a week's worth of delay on that. But so, you know, look for it that second, maybe that at earliest that first week of January, but most likely that second into the third week when the first checks start going out. And, you know, the, the holiday season was always going to slow down the government. That's always going to happen there. So we're going to take a break right here. And when we get back in the second segment, we'll talk through the latest coronavirus numbers. So like I said, in the second segment, we're going to do what we normally do here, which is cover all the latest numbers on the coronavirus, talk through some vaccination stuff. I've pulled some numbers on that. That's going to be the new thing for this segment where we talk through the latest vaccination numbers because it's kind of helpful to know. All of that's very early. It's kind of hard to tell exactly you know, where these numbers are just because the, when your vaccination numbers are only at most two weeks old. And really, for the most part, they're about a week old. So this is going to get better, especially once we hit the first of the year and this starts getting normalized a little bit. We can build some national databases, kind of like we do with testing. It was hard to get good information on testing and then finally you had a few websites pop up that tracked everything so i have numbers we'll get into those in a bit but before i do any of that i wanted to go and this is admittedly a rant i do want to go on a brief rant here on vaccine shaming i saw several posts over the weekend all coming from mostly the sunday shows and big-time leftist journalists and pundits on cable television, admittedly mostly all on CNN, and they were all making the same self-righteous posts, saying something along the lines of, well, why are these Republican senators or representatives or others getting the vaccine now? Why not healthcare workers? Why not the elderly? We blame these Republicans for, for all of the spread of this virus. Why should they be vaccinated first? This was spread by people like Jake Tapper at CNN, pundits on his channel who are all uniformly, mostly awful people. And they were making these and other snarky posts. And they were, you know, like I said, they were targeting Republicans. They were, because the, some of the big ones were Mike Pence got his vaccination openly. Marco Rubio had a viral post where he got a vaccine. And so they were making these big public statements about getting this. And then you had this return where instead of encouraging people to do this and to encourage others to get the vaccine, you had, well, why are we letting them get a vaccine? Why don't we just give it to people who deserve it more? And, you know, obviously the first thing here, they were obviously quiet when Democrats did the same thing. For instance, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had a viral post where she got her vaccine on, on Instagram Live, which, just frankly, I think is fantastic. That is what should be happening. Because here's the true bottom line on this. Every member of Congress, every, every elected government official from the federal level, the state level, and the local level, every last single one of them should be among the first to be vaccinated early on, just like healthcare workers and just like the elderly. We're trying to end a pandemic here. We have two vaccines right now that are beginning to make the rounds, potentially a third. But the point here about where you're trying to figure out where to send this vaccine, these first round of doses, you're trying to make sure that you have the best form of functioning society and that all the people that you absolutely need from your most vulnerable to your most important to ensure society is running, you want those people vaccinated. You want them to have that protection. Everyone saw Donald Trump get taken up in a helicopter and taken to the hospital. 
That was terrifying for a lot of people. You don't want that happening to any elected member of Congress. I've seen multiple mayors in Tennessee, both on a city and a, and a county level, who have died. Sometimes they were former mayors, sometimes they were current mayors, but they have died as a result of this disease. And that throws that local city or county into a tailspin because they have to get somebody else in that seat. They don't have, uh, oftentimes, you know, you're scrambling to get people to make decisions for things. You want your government to be working in a pandemic. You do not want it hamstrung by people not willing to do things because they are infected with the virus. And so this is this is not a political statement for me. Vaccine shaming anyone who isn't in the quote unquote risk group is utterly stupid and self-defeating. We need everyone to get this vaccine as soon as as possible. And when you make these really, really asinine vaccine shaming posts, what people see is they say that both sides of the aisle are getting the vaccine or not getting the vaccine as a political statement. And so that's going to ensure that some people don't get it at all because they're going to see, well, this vaccine is just a political thing. I'm not going to engage in that at all because everyone's just firing darts back at each other over whether or not you have or haven't get, gotten it. Because that is the thing here. If you don't get it, they're the media, these, these Jake Tapper idiot types, they're going to shame you for not getting it, which is the correct thing because you want everyone getting this thing, getting this vaccine. And on the flip side, when you are getting it, you're making these snarky posts that are going to turn people off from getting it to begin with. So it doesn't matter what decision you make here. People like him are making these posts that are petty, ill-advised, frankly, because this is a serious situation. And when you make those types of posts, you are telling people around you that this is not a serious situation. This is just petty politics, and I'm just going to fire these darts. There is no hypocrisy in vaccinating government officials, not a single one in any party. Again, you know... I'm a conservative. I voted all Republican down ticket. I want people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez making those Instagram videos and encouraging people to get that virus. That is a fantastic job on her part, and I am glad to see her doing it, and I hope everyone on her side of the aisle does it and copies her behavior. You want that. Likewise, I want people copying Mike Pence and Marco Rubio because, and this is not a political statement again, I want this pandemic to end. I don't want people, I don't I especially don't want the government to have these emergency powers and the way to end it is to get rid of the threat of the virus. If that's gotten rid of, then there is no other legal obligation to have all these emergency powers in place and all these court cases that have created bad law are going to start crumbling very quickly. And we saw this with testing and how it all went down. I, I would have had every member of Congress tested at least weekly for basically the past eight months. I would have set aside a special supply to make sure that they were tested at least on a once-a-week basis. That way, if you find any infection at all, you can get those people quarantined immediately. Instead, that didn't happen. We had bad transparency. We didn't know who had it, who, you know, when they got it. It was impossible to trace anything. And even with the Biden campaign, who's supposed, you know, he wore a mask everywhere, even outside when he wasn't surrounded. The nearest person for him was like 50 feet away, which was stupid and self-defeating. But even when it came to testing him, we knew he'd been in contact with somebody who had had it, a.k.a. the president in this case. Biden was, you know, very non-transparent about whether or not he'd been tested. His campaign would usually say, oh, we'll get around to it. We'll release something on this day. It's like, no, you need to be tested right now. We need to know this answer right now. And you need to be tested every single day. This same thing needs to happen in Congress. People do not get to need to choose. They need to be very public. It needs to be very transparent here. People need to see their elected officials getting these shots. If you're a member of Congress and you've chosen to be elected here, you don't get a choice in my book. This is mandatory, and I'm happy to see some people making it public. I want more of them to be that way because I want people to look at them and say, I'm going to act like them because I voted for them. That is the way to ending this thing. And when you make these vaccine shaming posts, you're proving that you're not a serious person. And these vaccine shaming posts, they just need to stop. 
They're not helpful anyone, and they're not good. And it's just petty political point scoring. And it shows what an utter idiot people like Jake Tapper are, because they are choosing this over the actual principle that is in play here, which is ending the virus. He would rather sit there and make these snarky posts and pretend he's holier than thou than actually being a part of the effort in the virus. Frankly, if he's going to continue doing like things, I hope he goes and licks a doorknob because this is revolting to the extreme. Cannot stand it. I hope CNN burns it to the ground and is no longer in existence because they are the worst on this kinds of stuff. They preach loudly, you know, all day long about all these principles and norms that the Trump campaign ignored during the campaign or the Trump administration ignored during the last four years. And in the middle of a pandemic, they can't even bring themselves to help encourage everyone to do the right thing, get tested early on, get antibody testing to see whether or not you need these vaccines. Instead, they're more interesting in scoring political points. CNN is not a real journalistic organization. They are a joke. And I hope one day they run out of business because this type of stuff should not be tolerated by anyone. Okay, I'm going to get off that train because that is a long rabbit trail that I could go on for a very long time on. So we'll just go from that into the numbers. This is what we would normally do at this point. If you're new tuning in, normally I just spend some time here going through the numbers, pulling them from the COVID tracking project and a few other sources that I use. So we've run approximately 15, 14 to 15 million tests over the last week. We're averaging close to 2 million new tests a day on the seven-day average front. Overall, we've run 232 million tests overall. We're about 100 million away from hitting the, the entire population of the United States. So in the span of a year, we'll have run enough tests to test everyone in the United States. Now, obviously, not everyone is going to be tested, and that is a good thing. It means we've got people getting multiple tests, which is where you want to be. That is, frankly, where you want to be. And this kind of testing is fine. But, you know, I'm glad we're at these levels. But with vaccines becoming more of a thing now, testing is going to lose its importance here very soon. Because it's going to be more important that you know exactly how many people have been vaccinated with this first dose and less about how many people are being tested for the coronavirus on a daily basis. So it's important to know for now. I'm going to keep it in. But at some point in January, I'm probably going to cut the, the, the testing number just because it's not going to matter. And the only thing that's going to matter is if it shows a dramatic uptick in the number of new cases. So we're in a great place with testing. Don't get me wrong. I'm very happy with it. It's just that it's losing its importance here as we reach the end, hopefully, of this pandemic. So the number of these cases, however, coming in of new cases, so this is your positive cases, coming in every day, that still remains pretty high. But it does appear to have stabilized. We don't appear to be going up like a rocket ship like we've been doing for so long. The seven-day average over the last few weeks has largely stabilized somewhere around 200 to 225,000, which, admittedly, that's far too high. You don't want it to be that much. That is more than double where we were at any point in time in the summer. We don't really know what happened in the spring, but this is just based on hospitalizations and other data. This seems to be a whole lot more than whatever we would have had in the spring period. So 200 to 25,000, that's a lot. It's not going up, though. It's largely stabilizing around this range. It may have edged up a little bit over that time, but it's not by much. And that's a good thing. The question now is whether or not this goes down, and that is the big question you're going to hear everybody talking about over this next week or so, whether or not we're going to see an increase in the numbers over Christmas. Now, it's important to note here, from what I've seen in the data and what I've seen some others comment on it, we didn't see a spike in the numbers after Thanksgiving. The quote-unquote increase you saw over that time was something that was already happening, already in play. There was a lag in the Thanksgiving data, and then there was a large spike up, which was really all the stuff that happened during that brief Thanksgiving period. It all came in at once, which kind of made things appear like there was a big spike. When in reality, if you just kind of ramp that over that period of time, you would see sort of this natural increase that you would expect it given on previous trend lines. So the question is whether or not we do the same thing in Christmas, where the current trend lines hold instead of Christmas being a super spreader event. It doesn't appear Thanksgiving was. If you go back and look at something like uh, the 4th of July, that didn't appear to be a super spreader event. So 
there's not a lot of evidence that these holidays by themselves are the super spreader events. There are other things that cause it, but it doesn't appear these holidays by themselves, as you're kind of looking at them over time through the summer, fall, and now winter, that those are your direct causes. The the other piece of information that folks on here to say that we stabilized is the positivity rate. So we've stabilized on the number of tests overall coming back positive, even though it's very high. The positivity rate has kind of stabilized too. Last week, I was telling you that this number was too high and it was trending up. And that was true. It was at 11.4%. And during the middle of this past week, it went even higher to 11.8%. However, that was in the middle of the week. And as of today, that has gone down. And so we're now sitting at 11.1%. So we're below where we started the week, and we're also well below the high. So that's that's good. It, it's still 11%, which is far too much. When we were at our lulls here, when things kind of bottomed out, we were around 4.5%. So we've got a long ways to drop here. But if that continues, that could be a sign that you're seeing less spread of the virus overall, at least on a national level. I know there are hot spots everywhere. Everywhere I saw on social media this week, people were talking about how Tennessee was the worst place to be in regards to the virus. If you're looking purely on a per capita basis, yes, that's true. If you use other methods, it's not true. And in reality, you know, you can make any of these different, a lot of these different places look like the worst ever. In reality, I wouldn't want to be in California just through the sheer numbers. It's a numbers game out there that they're fighting. Tennessee has its own unique problems. Those are mostly going to be related to the hospitalization factor here because we do not have enough hospital beds, which is why they've started instituting bans on certain kinds of gatherings, or at least restrictions. I don't know how they plan on actually enforcing it, but that is where we are here. So that's kind of where things are on the testing front. Things look like they're getting better. However, that, as you know, there's always a delay here. There's about a 7 to 10 day delay between what shows up in your testing into your another 7 to 10 day delay and what shows up in your hospitalizations and then another delay into deaths. This is sort of a tiered system here where it takes time for your initial test to work all, they're all the way through hospitalization and eventually whether or not a fatality occurs. That just takes time. You're usually talking about five to eight weeks, a month, two months, basically what you're talking about for that full cycle to go through. Because if you're talking about a hospitalization, you're talking about the worst of the worst of the cases. So hospitalizations have continued to go up, but they're not going up with the same sharpness and starkness that we witnessed before. So we've gone above the 110,000 mark, which I said would happen this past week, and that peaked in the middle of the week at around 114,459. So that is very high. That is far too high. And this is just short of doubling where we were in the summer and the spring. So in the summer and the spring, hospitalizations peaked at around 60,000. It was just below that. So double that, and you're talking 120,000, and right now we are shy of that by about five to 6,000. This hospitalization's peaked this week at 114,000. Right now they're sitting at 113,663, so just under 1,000 difference there where they decreased ever so slightly. And when you're comparing different days, it just kind of looks like a plateau here. So current hospitalizations... If you're just comparing this week and the numbers within this week, they have plateaued a little bit. If you're comparing beginning of the week to the end of the week, we're obviously up, which is not good. But looking at where things are, it's not a thing where you're looking at this week and you're saying, okay, cases went up every last single day, which was the trend line before. Basically, cases were going up in the hospital every last single day, and people were just filling into these hospitals. And if you saw news stories on you know, ABC News at night, you know, they're, the ABC, CBS, NBC, if they did any of their nightly news shows, they always had... At least one of them each night had a, had a story from a hospital where you they were people were piled into the halls and the, you know so forth and so on, and that's where we are on this front. There are too many people with hospitalizations for this specific disease, and when you have this many people hospitalized for this one thing, it's going to remove resources to deal with other diseases that these hospitals need to deal with. So that is the problem with this. Our healthcare system is close to being overwhelmed overall. And in some states and hotspots, it is overwhelmed. So that's where we are on hospitalizations. I can't say for a fact that hospitalizations have plateaued because week to week they haven't. Within the realm of this week, they may have. 
So we'll keep an eye on that. I don't think we're quite to the point where we can say that just yet, though. I think that's still another week or two away. And if hospitalizations are at that point, then you know for a fact that deaths have not slowed down at all, and that is the case. That is true, because this past week featured all-time highs on a single-day death totals. We had back-to-back days where we were hitting nearly 3,500 deaths in a day, which was well over anything we experienced in the spring, well over anything we experienced in the summer. And so the seven-day average of new deaths each day is sitting just above 2,600 every last single day, which is higher than any other period that we've ever experienced here, including the spring. So deaths are always the slowest lagging indicator here. They're going to continue going up. The seven-day average will continue going up until you see cases and hospitalizations plateau, and then you might be able to see some gravity take effect here and at least flatten this out so where more people are not dying, and that would be a good thing. But right now, this is definitely this past week, this week, uh, this upcoming week, I think this is going to be the worst stretch period of time here for deaths just because this is where you've got the maximum amount of hospitalizations and cases that were going through the system about three or four weeks ago. So that's just where we are on that front. And it's bad. I hope it gets better here, but for right now, it is, in fact, bad. And I mentioned, this is the good news part here. I mentioned at the top we were going to talk through the vaccination numbers, so that's going to be the new data point that we're going to throw here at the end. How many vaccines have we administered? That is kind of a tricky question to answer. We, I know how many we've sent out globally. And the global number right now, which I don't think includes Sunday, because some Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal reporting earlier in the week suggested that by the end of Sunday, we would have 2.9 million people vaccinated. And the last report I saw, it said that we had 2.12 million people vaccinated, and that was a global number. In the United States, that number is a little over half a million people. And the exact number is 556,208. That is how many vaccination doses that we've sent out that we've documented. I'm sure it's higher than that. So remember, these require two doses because the only thing we have out are the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, which require two doses. Pfizer is about three weeks apart, 21 days. The Moderna one is is 24 weeks or 28 days. I could have those reversed, but three to four weeks is what you're looking at on both of them. So these are all first-dose people. So we've given a first dose out to about a half a million people. These are all going to be your healthcare workers and elderly people. We're going to continue pumping those out over this next week. This is really our first good week with the Pfizer stuff since it's kind of started over the weekend last week. So that's going to continue going up. I will leave a link in the show notes if you want to go check out specific states' dashboards. Most state or right now, a minority of the states are trying to build dashboards so you can go and look at reports to see how many people are vaccinated each day. I imagine that all states will eventually do this because there's going to be peer pressure to look like other states that are giving out this information. Um, but not everyone has it yet. And that's primarily because the vaccine is not in all states. Right now, you're really looking at pilot programs in a lot of states or an expanded pilot program. So initially, Pfizer was only going to send out the first doses to about a handful of states. Tennessee was one of those that were included, which is part of the reason that I was so mad at some of these vaccine shaming posts because there was some viral post on Twitter where you had a doctor saying, why are the politicians getting it when I'm not getting it? And you look at their information and they would be in some place like Massachusetts, specifically they'd be someone from Harvard. And you're like, well, you're not getting it because Massachusetts was not part of the pilot program, nor was Harvard. That's why you will get it here in a couple of weeks. These other states, which <laughs> Pfizer and the U.S. government and these states all said this is a pilot program to test out our delivery method because if you know the Pfizer vaccine, it requires very specific temperatures to be held at. It, I think it's like negative 80, I believe they said. So it has to be very cold for this. You have to build facilities to be able to hold this vaccination. So in the pilot program, we're building those. You're going to have to do the same thing in these other states. That's partially why I think we'll end up switching over to the Moderna vaccine. It's easier to store and also because the United States bought an extra 100 million doses of it. So that's just a lot more doses of that thing. 
So the number for the United States is about half a million, a little over that. I'll link again, like I said, in the show notes to the dashboard so you can go check out other states. For an example, I was able to pull Tennessee's initial data here in Tennessee, which has a population of a little over 6 million people. We have vaccinated so far 2,711 people, and that's in the span of we started vaccinating people on this past Thursday, so I'm recording late Sunday night. So that's only a few days there. So we're, we, you know, almost 3,000 people in a span of a few days, which is pretty good for an initial week out, a few days here. So this next week will also not count because you've got Christmas. And then the following week, you've got New Year's. So we're going to be vaccinating more people here. But these holidays, as they sort of line up here, is going to sort of muck up the data here on the vaccination front. So if people start complaining about things being unnaturally low on that front, just remember you have Christmas, you have New Year's. People are not going to be working all those hours. So the vaccinations are not always going to be able to go out all those hours. But after that, you're going to be on the, we'll be on the full court press. And so I think... We've already done, even with this limited amount of time here, even with that, we've already vaccinated half a million people. And if you remember anything about the testing issues that we had, you know, we were lucky some days where we were doing a thousand tests on a national basis, and now we're doing almost two million a day. That's that's kind of what this ramp up is going to be like on vaccinations. And we're already much faster at that than we are at testing. So I fully expect you're going to see millions. I think you, over this next couple of weeks, you'll probably start seeing, you know, a hundred thousands of people vaccinated in a single day as we sort of get into the groove and figure this thing out. So those are all the big numbers right now. The vaccine numbers are basically the first ones that these are the first ones we have. I think it's good nationwide. We're already at half a million. We've already done a few million internationally. But, you know, if you're focusing on a state-to-state basis, these are obviously too low. But that's going to change as we start seeing more allotment going out. And more specifically, you're going to see that change as the Moderna vaccine starts kicking in here and it starts going out. The U.S. has far more access to that. And like I said, we've already ordered another 100 million doses to go along with the Pfizer vaccine. The other one... And I keep mentioning it because I, I think it's actually very promising is the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. I think we're actually going to have three here. Uh, the The Johnson and Johnson vaccine is based on the actual virus. So Moderna and Pfizer are based on mRNA technology. The Johnson and Johnson one is based on the actual virus. So it's like a traditional flu shot in this this phase. Um, And they have just entered phase three trials. In fact, this past week, they announced that their phase three trial had fully filled up and they had 45,000 people in it. That's a lot of people. And they're expecting to get results from that at some point around mid-January. So when they're saying it's filled up, they've already handed out all the placebos and all of the real vaccinations. So they know what's happening here. And like I said, they're expecting... Their first results start coming in about mid-January and then maybe February, according to their their press release. They think by then they will be able to file for an emergency use approval, so the same as Moderna and Pfizer. So that's kind of the timetable they're looking at here. There's going to be a little bit of wiggle room on that because they know, because they're waiting for data to come back on all the people who have had this, you know, either your placebo, your group, or your, or your actual vaccinated group you know that you've got to get all the data back on them, so that's going to take a little bit of time. They're optimistic they can do mid-January. They, they even said if it drags out a little bit, they could take it into February. But regardless, by February, I think they will they will have enough information to where they're going to be able to make that uh, emergency use approval request. And then once you factor in FDA approval, I, and I don't think, I, I don't know if the Biden administration will do anything to speed that up. I hope they do, but if they don't, you're looking at probably about March before that third vaccine kicks in, which will be good timing because we should be running through the initial Pfizer and Moderna uh, manufactured doses by that point. So there could be potentially really good timing here because by that point, we will be hoping to get more of the 100 million dose stash from Moderna. If the Johnson & Johnson one kicks in, we'll have that one here in the United States. And then it's just a question of whether or not we can get more of the Pfizer one. Pfizer is being a little bit more stingy with the United States because they have a little bit more of an international footprint as far as where they're selling it. You're seeing far more of them 
across Europe and other places. And so I think you'll see more of, after about a month or two here, I think you'll see more people getting that Moderna vaccine instead of the Pfizer vaccine. So um, the last point I'll make here on, on the on the vaccinations, it comes from, I believe, a CBS News this morning over Sunday. They had a doctor on one of the Sunday shows. I think it was this, the This Morning show. And he, he was saying he didn't expect to see, quote, widespread access to the vaccine until the early until the summer or early fall of next year. And I get why he's saying that, but I think that is far too conservative. I really think people are underestimating the rollout of this vaccination and Operation Warp Speed because we've already gotten half a million doses out in the United States alone. That is a ton. And this is going to ramp up even more here. It's like testing. It's going to ramp up very quickly here. And even if we stick with the two vaccines, which again, I think is unlikely. I think we're going to get to three. Each one of these companies has a goal of producing about a billion doses by the end of the year. So even with Johnson & Johnson, they're going to want to mass produce this at a very large scale. And then they'll be able to keep it in the background as they bring forward all their other products. And that's going to be the incentivation for each one of these companies because you're trying to vaccinate basically the entire planet here. And that's billions of people. That is a lot of doses. So when you're talking about that... I think that actually means you need to stop talking to some of these doctors and even some of these epidemiologists because they don't know what they're talking about on this front. Because when you're talking about these kinds of numbers and what we're going to do, this is no longer an epidemiology or even a medical issue. This is now a manufacturing, supply chain, and delivery issue. And just frankly, that's outside the purview of most of them. It's going to be outside the purview of anyone with a medical degree or even, you know, even me with a with a law degree. It's a different set of skills and it just it falls into a level of expertise of something where you're talking you're talking more about hospital administrators, uh, pharmacists and people like them. But in reality, you're talking about you're talking about manufacturing and supply chain and delivery. You're talking about something that is very, something America is very good at. If there is one thing we know how to do, it is to build a supply chain and get something there very quickly. And it's just something we're going to get better at. Once we figure out how to do it, we're going to get very good and very fast at it. We're literally an expert country on this exact topic because we can move stuff from China. We move stuff from all the countries around the world to supply us to build our own products or to build products elsewhere. We are very good at this very thing. And I think you're going to see companies like CVS, your Walgreens, uh, even your Walmarts here, because your all the Walmarts out there, most of them have those pharmacies in the middle. And they're going to be the, the supply points here. It's not going to just be hospitals. You're going to see these private companies get in, and they are eventually going to overwhelm what's happening here in the hospital space. It's a little bit like the testing stuff. When we first started out, only the public testing company, or the public health departments were able to test for this stuff. And so that limited us to about, you know, a few hundred a day. We were able to, in Tennessee, I know for a fact, we were limited by about a cap of about a thousand. Well, then we hired on all these private companies that could do it. And all of a sudden now we're, we're testing, it's nothing for us to test 50 to 80,000 people a day here in the state of Tennessee alone. And so that is the kind of thing that I think you're going to see here. Those are the kind of improvements. I even think you'll see the Amazons of the world step up here and because at a minimum, they'll want their workforces vaccinated. That's something that's going to make them better and able to deal with stuff. So I really think people are underestimating what's going to happen here and how fast you're going to see things ramp up. So that's all I've got for for this week on, on all the segments. Uh, with that, we're going to wrap things up and hit this week's light item. Like I said at the very, very top, since it's the week of Thanksgiving, I thought it was, I mean, not Thanksgiving, Christmas. I hope I haven't been saying that all the way through, but, you know, it may have happened. For Christmas, I thought it was right to go back to a classic that I really enjoy from this time. I think I even played it last year, and so I'm going to do it again because I like this song a lot. But it's a Star Trek comp- um, compilation where Jean-Luc Picard, he has various scenes that are spliced together to make him sound like he's singing the song let it snow. So with that, I'll just let Star Trek take us away. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. 
and sense we've no place to go make it so make it so make it so man it doesn't show signs of stopping and i brought me some tea or gray hot the lights are turned way down low make it so make it so make it so when we finally kiss good night how i hate going out in the storm but if you really shut up wesley all the way home i'll be warm oh the fire is slowly dying and my dear we're still goodbye then but as long as you love me so make it so make it so make it so Well, that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look, look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week and wishing each and every one of you a very Merry Christmas, and I will see you guys in the next episode. 